Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. We'll hear from two clinicians in the state who are on the front lines of research into the disease. Then, a personal story of living with Alzheimer's. Later, a health minute from Dr. Rick DeShazo on anxiety. And a conversation on ending zero tolerance in schools. They were seeing so many of their young uh, African-American boys sent away to these sort of residential, you know, holding facilities elsewhere in the state. You know, it was a a grassroots movement in, in Jackson, Mississippi that started to help wake up the national civil rights community on this issue. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. More than 52,000 Mississippians are living with Alzheimer's today. The debilitating form of dementia is a brain disease that affects loved ones and caretakers, too. Clinicians at the Mind Center in Jackson provide care and perform research into Alzheimer's. The Institute, a part of the University of Mississippi Medical Center, provides diagnosis and treatment in an environment focused on the well-being of patients. We spoke with Denise Lafferty, Chief of Operations at the Mind Center, and Andrew Majeste, clinical research nurse there. The MIND Center um, actually stands for Memory Impairment Neurodegenerative Dementia Center, and that's a long name, so that's why we shorten it to MIND, but we are focused on doing Alzheimer's research, and we also offer clinical services for people who are experiencing memory loss to come in and get evaluated and to be put on treatment um, for their disease. We often hear Alzheimer's as an umbrella term. Wouldn't dementia be the umbrella term? that Alzheimer's would fall underneath? You're exactly right, Karen. There's a lot of uh, misconceptions about that, but Alzheimer's is an umbrella term like cancer is an umbrella term, and there are different types of dementia, like there are different types of cancer, and Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. Andrew, do you work directly with people who have dementia? Yes, I, um, I'm the clinical research nurse in the Mind Center, and I conduct our clinical trials program. So we enroll patients with Alzheimer's and dementia um, on different medications as well as treatment modalities. Do you, are you involved in diagnosis? I mean, do you do testing of people who come in to determine what how the progress is or whether they have dementia? So our Mind Center physicians and uh, staff nurses that work in the clinic um, do the evaluations. Um, they have cognitive evaluations. Our physicians evaluate medications, they evaluate reversible symptoms of memory loss, um, and they do diagnose um, Alzheimer's disease and dementia within our clinic. 
Denise, what is it being forgetful and when is it dementia? Sometimes it's very hard to discern between the two. Um, Something that one of our physicians has said that I've overheard, which I think is helpful, is that we all have memory loss as we start to get older in our lives. But when it becomes more prevalent, when you lose your keys and you can never find them, you can't backtrack and figure out where you might have been, where you may have left them, um, then that may be a flag that a person may want to come in and get evaluated. You know, I just learned of a a woman that I know in her early 60s who has early onset. And she recognized early onset because her mother also had Alzheimer's. Mm. Is it something that runs in the family? It is, especially the early onset. um, Alzheimer's and dementia tends to have a genetic component. Um, The onset that occurs after 65 um, may not, but we're still trying to figure the disease out. Quite frankly, it's a very complex disease. Andrew, do you know if there's a way to determine whether you will get Alzheimer's? Currently, the research, um, there is genetic testing. Um, There isn't always a strong correlation between that, but it can be an indicator. Um, There's also an amyloid PET scan that can be a diagnostic tool um, to actually visualize the amyloid plaque, which is the primary cause of Alzheimer's disease. What what is that? Go into a little more detail about that plaque. In normal aging, some plaque builds up in the um, spaces in the brain. Is it in a particular part of the brain? um, It's all over the, the brain, all over the surface of the brain. And in normal aging, there can be small amounts, but particularly in Alzheimer's disease, there is a large buildup of that amyloid plaque um, in different areas of the brain, the frontal lobe, the parietal lobe areas, especially. Now, because it's around so much of the brain, is that why you can't go in and take it out or scrape it off? That's correct. Um, We haven't particularly found a way for us to remove the amyloid plaque. Um, There are some clinical trials being conducted um, where they are actually putting antibodies into the patient that are specific for the amyloid plaque in early onset mild cognitive impairment. And so those patients are currently being tested with clinical trials medication to see if it does help kind of take away some of that amyloid plaque. Denise, because Alzheimer's is the more prevalent of the dementia, and because it seems like we're seeing many, many more cases, which would make me think that cases previously were misdiagnosed, mm-hmm. is there a great deal of money going to towards research because we're all touched by Alzheimer's in a sense? That's an excellent question. Um, Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. And sad to say that it's the most costly disease in the top 10, but it's the least federally funded. Most costly in terms of treatment? Yes. And also the cost to caregivers who need to care for their loved ones with the disease for many, many years. And so there's definitely a movement underway to raise awareness and funding on the federal side. And during this current fiscal year, we were really thrilled that an additional $350 million in federal funding for research was allocated um, toward Alzheimer's disease. For those that are concerned, especially loved ones who wonder if their family member may have it, how, how can they get in touch with you or find out more information? They can call uh, Monday through Friday during normal business hours. The phone number is 601-496-MIND, which is 6463. 
and we have a dedicated scheduler. Her name is Ebony, and she will be happy to help anyone who calls and give them more information or help them get an appointment. Denise Lafferty is the Chief of Operations at the Mind Center, and Andrew Majesty is a clinical research nurse at the Mind Center. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming in. Thank Thank you you very much. To mark World Alzheimer's Day today, the Mind Center will host a painted purple balloon launch this afternoon at 1 in front of the parking garage or parking garage A on the University of Mississippi Medical Center campus in Jackson. Up next, a personal story of living with Alzheimer's. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Our series on climate change continues with a look at how three U.S. cities are adapting. In New Orleans, they're preparing for the next Hurricane Katrina. We've built the largest storm surge barrier in the country, one of the largest in the world. It's gigantic. We call it the Great Wall of New Orleans. But we still need to be very conscious of the abilities of of storm surge and its effect on the city. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Jonas Adams, and I just had to take some time to say thank you. You stood tall and showed us just how much you value MPB Think Radio. The support you showed during our One Day, One Drive, One Goal campaign was absolutely amazing, and we just can't say thank you enough. We took a big gamble switching our fall drive from two weeks to one day, and because of you, it paid off tremendously. Thank you so much for supporting MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. And now a conversation about being a caregiver to an Alzheimer's patient. Gary and Lisa Michelle of Biloxi have been married for 25 years and have three children. Gary was diagnosed with Alzheimer's four years ago. Since then, Lisa's life has been reorganized around providing for her husband. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the symptoms showed up slowly. We first noticed that um, something wasn't right with Gary probably about three years after Katrina. Um, maybe, maybe a little sooner there were things that weren't quite right, but it was 2010, the fifth anniversary, and Gary and I have always been able to finish each other's sentences. And we were making a presentation in our neighborhood on the anniversary, at the anniversary party. And um, Of he, Katrina or your anniversary? Of Katrina, oh, okay. of Katrina. We were making a presentation... We live on a very close-knit neighborhood. We had created the Seal Avenue Award, or the Spirit of Seal Award. And so we were presenting that award, and we had made a decision who we would give the first one to. And Gary, I got emotional and looked at him, and normally he would just pick up and (laughs) finish the sentences, and he just couldn't. He just was completely not in the moment, um, which was very unusual for him. Gary is a uh, veteran radio broadcaster, emceed many, many events, was a professional at doing that. And he just was not there completely. And we knew then that what we were seeing, we had a good idea of what it was because I had dealt with this with my mother and my grandmother. So we, we knew the signs. You have a lot of experience with this um, disease, it sounds like. I do. <laughs> I understand that it impacts the entire family. It does. As a matter of fact, when Gary put off a diagnosis for about three years, and that's the first thing I would tell people, um, if you if you begin to see the signs and the symptoms, go to the doctor. If you find out that the diagnosis is not Alzheimer's, then be proud, you know, and, and rejoice. And if you find out it is, own it. 
you know, take charge of it. There are things you can do. There are medications you can take. Um, but, but go ahead for your sake and for your family's sake. Know what's happening with you and get treatment. And so Gary, was he in denial? He just didn't want to... You know, we had just gone through Katrina. Everybody was depressed and nobody was normal. And so we, you know, we gave him that benefit of the doubt that maybe it was stress and depression. Um, We all had, were experiencing some of that in those years to follow that such devastation. But then we, we began to see that it was much more than that. And we knew those signs having dealt with that with my mother and her mother and, and, and my mother's two siblings, two of my mother's siblings. So how old was he when he was diagnosed? He was 65. And that was in um, 2012. We had an initial diagnosis and then the official diagnosis the following February in um, 2013. In that time when he did not want to be diagnosed, did you see a decline? Yes. We saw increasing um, forgetfulness, um, some problems with vis- some visual problems, spatial issues. Um, all of the classic signs were there. How has it been for you? <laughs> if you went down the caregiver stress list, I have all of those symptoms. So, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's a challenge and it's stressful. It's overwhelming. You become, you know, Gary today is in the sixth of the seven stages of Alzheimer's disease. So I'm his dietitian, his chef, his housekeeper, his stylist, his barber, his handyman, his chauffeur, I can continue, as well as his wife and his comforter and his friend. So he, um, there's very little he can do. So my days are pretty much 24-7 given to his care and attention to him. And that's okay because he, he's such an incredible human being and deserves that. MPB's Desiree Fraser with Lisa Michelle of Biloxi on providing care to her husband, Gary, who has Alzheimer's. Up next, a health minute from Dr. Rick DeShazo on anxiety. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Our series on climate change continues with a look at how three U.S. cities are adapting. In New Orleans, they're preparing for the next Hurricane Katrina. We've built the largest storm surge barrier in the country, one of the largest in the world. It's gigantic. We call it the Great Wall of New Orleans. But we still need to be very conscious of the abilities of of storm surge and its effect on the city. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy on the go with the MyBlue mobile app available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. More information at bcbsms.com. It's good to be blue. Hi, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. It's a minute about social anxiety disorder, a condition where folks feel anxious in social situations. They can be embarrassed in front of other people, and it can keep folks from doing things they need and want to do. There are different forms of social anxiety. Anxiety at meetings or parties is sometimes called social phobia. Other folks have social anxiety only at certain times, like speaking before an audience. This problem is sometimes called performance anxiety. Unfortunately, folks with social anxiety disorder avoid social activities because they worry about being embarrassed or fear that others will say bad things about them. Some people even have physical symptoms when they have social anxiety. This can include blushing, sweating, tremblessness, a rapid heartbeat, or a fear of looking at other folks. How do you treat social anxiety disorder? 
There are two treatments. One is called cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, which is talk therapy. There you talk with a psychologist or other counselor about your issues and develop effective coping mechanisms to deal with the anxiety you have. Sometimes medicines are also required, and certain antidepressant medicines are also very effective with anxiety. Sometimes it takes cognitive behavioral therapy and medicines at the same time for severe cases. Folks with social anxiety disorder often have some level of anxiety most of the time. For those folks, anxiety comes and goes and is provoked by stress. The good news is most people can find treatments that are adequate to have a normal life. For more health tips and medical information, listen for Southern Remedy each weekday at 11, where the doctors are always in. For MPB Think Radio, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Kevin Farrell, Assistant Director of MPB Think Radio. Our recent drive time is history, and the results are, well, amazing. We challenged you to step up with your financial support, and you responded, contributing $81,000 in just one day. We'll use the money to help keep quality radio programs on the air. We want to say thanks to everyone who contributed, and thanks also to our sustaining members who provide ongoing monthly support. We value this unique partnership, and we can't do it without you. Thanks again. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Zero-tolerance policies have become become common in Mississippi public schools and across the country. The policies give swift and non-negotiable punishments to students who have violated school codes. Proponents say the policies provide safety for teachers and students. Those against the policies say they are punitive and take the focus away from giving troubled students the support they need. Derek W. Black is an expert on education and the law. He has studied zero tolerance across the country and has written a book about his findings, Zero Tolerance, the Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. Black tells us his interest in the policy started as a defense attorney. Well, I first got interested when I got a call from some students in Tennessee, actually, who'd been expelled for being in a gang. And you know, I went down there to represent those students and, and found that no matter what I did as an advocate, um, no matter how irrational the punishment, the school was going to throw these boys away, these young African-American boys. And it was very disheartening. But I didn't really get a chance to re-engage with, with the issue for a couple more years. And it was really when I got uh, an invitation to come to Jackson, Mississippi, actually, to talk to uh, quite a large group of, of concerned citizens who had just said, you know, enough is enough. And, and they were seeing so many of their young uh, African-American boys, not not just suspended and expelled from school, but, but sent away to these sort of uh, residential, you know, holding facilities elsewhere in the state. And, um, you know, it was a, a grassroots movement in, in Jackson, Mississippi, I think, actually, that, that started to help wake up the national civil rights community on this issue. Do you think the problem lies with zero tolerance in a lot of schools? Well, I think it lies with zero tolerance, and I think zero tolerance bleeds over into what I would call an overall irrational uh, discipline system. What do you think the purpose is for schools? Why do they enact zero tolerance? 
Well, one is the idea that we can scare students straight, right? Set simple, plain rules with heavy and deep punishment, and kids will conform their action. You know, anyone who is a parent knows that that only works for so long, that, that children actually lack the capacity to be good all the time. So setting rules does, doesn't have that effect. But that that's one thing that's going on. I think the other thing that it, it is going on is that no one wants to take responsibility for making decisions. It's much easier to have a policy that says, I don't have to decide if this is a good kid or a bad kid. I don't have to decide whether this was accidental misbehavior or, or intentional or that this is serious misbehavior or minor. The rule says you do X, we suspend you. And so when the parent comes to complain, not my fault, you know, blame the legislature, not my fault, blame the school board. So I think some of this is just pushing responsibility off on someone Well, and else. it sounds like, too, it, it means throwing the child away as opposed to advocating for a child. Well, I think it means throwing the kid away instead of educating the child. I mean, the problem of misbehavior in school really has a, a lot to do with the individual circumstances of children. And so some children are confronting issues outside the school in terms of homelessness, in terms of hunger, in terms of poverty, in terms of child abuse, right, in terms of uh, the dissolution of the family and divorce. And all of those things manifest themselves in school. And telling a kid, we're going to, you know, suspend or punish you because <laughs> your parents are getting a divorce, you know, that is not going to solve the problem. Uh, so there's a, one set of problems that, that are be, misbehaving behaviors that come from that. But there's another set that come from the fact that children are simply struggling to learn. Some children, uh, or I should say a substantial portion of children who are encountering difficulty in learning, um, sort of redirect their energy uh, to misbehavior, try to get away from to try to get away from the issue, right? It's sort of a normal response. I can't overcome this challenge, so I'm going to act out. So the solution here is to really figure out what is going on with these children and try to uh, address the root of the problem rather than coming in at the back end and severely punishing them um, for uh, for the misbehavior. But as you said, you know, some people think it's easier to simply kick a kid out than it is to figure out how to best educate and address a child's needs. What do you say to parents or educators, teachers, administrators who say parents are sending kids to school who aren't prepared for school, that they're they're essentially dumping their kids in school as a daycare kind of situation and not engaging that child at home and disciplining that child at home, perhaps? You know, that may or may not be true in, in some set of circumstances, but what I would tell you is that every constitution of every state in the United States of America obligates the states to deliver children an education. So this is not sort of public welfare. This is the constitutional obligation of the state, and it is their obligation to get those children from wherever they are when they show up to the point of productive graduates who can, who can move on in life. And so you know, is there some truth to, to the idea that some children come to school with more challenges and, and, and maybe if they had a better home life, things would, would be better? Yes. Is that an excuse for schools to not do their job? No, it's not an excuse for schools to not do their job. Derek, do you talk about corporal punishment in your book? I do talk about it uh, a little bit, and I actually use the example of corporal punishment to show why we must act on uh, on zero tolerance today, 
even if our legislatures are making progress. And so you know, the story goes is that basically, uh, you know, after the Supreme Court said in the 1970s that corporal punishment was permissible, there actually was a national consensus that began to turn against the practice. And over half of the states today ban corporal punishment. And Mississippi even is one that doesn't. And, and, and among the states that don't ban it, some local school districts uh, still ban it. So, you know, as a technical matter, it's not permitted in most places. But it still is the case that over 200,000 kids a year are corporally punished. And as you mentioned, it, it is in the places where we should be most concerned about it. It is in places like Mississippi, Texas, Alabama, where the overwhelming percentage uh, of these things are going on. And sometimes the kids are severely injured. And there there are you know, a number of questions uh, dating back to sort of our long and, and, and terrible history with, with race in our schools that people think are part of this conversation about corporal punishment. But the lesson I take from this is no matter how good of a job you know Massachusetts may be doing on corporal punishment, that doesn't do anything for kids in Jackson, Mississippi who are getting getting beaten is what their parents would say. And I think, you know, even if, you know, Massachusetts wants to come up with a better zero tolerance policy, that does nothing for children in the state of Mississippi if their local legislature and their local districts won't. And when we have that sort of situation, if children's rights are being violated, it is the obligation of courts to step in and protect those children, at least when, when the law says they should. And our courts have turned largely turned a blind eye to abuse and irrationality over the past two decades. Derek W. Black is the author of Ending Zero Tolerance, The Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. Mr. Black, thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up after Mississippi Edition, it's Fix It 101, Everyday Tech and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you like. It's easy. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Marketplace Tech for when.